This is the Ag Queen Podcast. Hello everyone, I'm your host Lori Boyer. This podcast explores the agriculture industry with the movers and shakers of those shaping it. And today I'm visiting with Dr. Rob Johansson. He is a Director of Economics and Policy Analysis with the American Sugar Alliance. Let's get started in our interview here today, Dr. Johansson, by talking a little bit more about you and your background. Hey, Lori. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to, to be here and to chat with you and your audience. So I've been at the American Sugar Alliance now for about seven months. I left uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where I had been for a number of years, at the end of January of this year. So um, it's a new role for me, a new uh, new organization. When I was at the Department of Agriculture, I was chief economist in my last role there. So over the past um, six years or so, I was I was, um, you know, helping with the uh, the rollout of a variety of programs that your your listeners probably remember, uh, the market facilitation program, um, a lot of the CFAP programs, but also dealing with you know the floods that we saw in 2019, and of course now we've got you know hurricane and drought issues. We can talk about those in a little bit because they really uh, are affecting the sugar producers in the United States. But um, yeah, so. I was at the, uh, you know, I served at the department for a number of years, um, and uh, prior to that, I was in, uh, I went to the University of Minnesota, where I got my PhD in agricultural economics. Grew up in Minnesota, uh, but I did have a chance to uh, spend a couple years abroad before heading off to Washington to work in agricultural economics. I um, got my undergraduate degree at Northwestern University in Chicago, and then um, I went to Peace Corps for about four and a half years where I worked with rural um, farmers in Africa, building fish ponds and working on integrated agricultural products in the early 1990s. And then following that, I went went to Washington to work for USDA and had an opportunity to do some work with the Office of Management and Budget, Congressional Budget Office, as well as the Economic Sorry, the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House. So had a, a good time in Washington, but um, do have a lot of experience as well working with farmers. And it's a real pleasure to be back I'm with the American Sugar Alliance, working with producers again. It's nice to get out and visit and hear about you know the challenges they're facing. But uh, we can get into more about the ASA in a second. Let me just stop there and see if you have any follow-ups on, on any background information. I don't really have any questions in particular, but just listening to you speak, it's pretty amazing the unique set of skills that you bring to this position, not only because you have a lot of background in economics in general, but working with the USDA, putting together programs, rolling out programs, not just for the sugar industry, but for all of agriculture, you really have a lot of working background knowledge that can be helpful for producers in the sugar industry, not only in economics, but trade and just your knowledge of how things work in the background. Well, yeah, it's great. It's nice to have that broader perspective. You know, certainly at the USDA, uh, being chief economist, we, of course, put out every month, put out the WASD, the World Ag Supply and Demand Estimates that you're familiar with. So I did get a good um, background and situation and outlook for all of the commodities and uh, obviously played a, a large role in looking at trade policies as well as other domestic policies that affected you know, livestock producers all the way down to specialty crop producers of fruits and vegetables. So I got a good background in a, in a lot of different areas. Um, I should point out that uh, my predecessor, Jack Roney, just retired. Uh, he was in the director role here at the American Sugar Alliance for over 25 years. So 
he had a real ability to to know the history of sugar um, policy and the program and where it's came where it came from that I'm still uh, really learning a lot about. You know, it it uh, when you move from all commodities to one commodity, you realize how many nuances and how many details are involved with understanding how certain programs were set up the way they were. So I'm really enjoying that aspect too of the, of the job, getting to learn about the new programs um, and the background that led to them. But I am uh, fortunate to have a good team of folks, um, both from the sugar beet side as well as from the sugar cane side to, uh, to help me come on board and to transition into this role. Dr. Johansson, let's talk now more about the American Sugar Alliance. Tell me more about this organization and its overreaching goals. Sure. Well, um, the ASA, or the American Sugar Alliance, um, again, not to be confused with the American Soybean Association, uh, was formed in 1983. Uh, it's a not-for-profit, and it's sort of an umbrella organization, represents all aspects of the U.S. sugar industry. Of course, the sugar policy oftentimes is becomes a controversial political issue. So having one organization that represents all the sort of corners of, of the U.S. industry and to sort of tell our story from one viewpoint is really important. We found out that there's a real strength in being unified and to provide a single message and representation to deliver that message effectively. You know, I'll give you a one, one small part of that story. Um, we know that just comparing American sugar producers to uh, other global producers of sugar, both cane and beet across the globe, we know that U.S. farmers are very efficient and they do have to also meet very high standards of environmental, consumer, and worker protections. And so we know that the American sugar producer can compete against foreign producers on a level playing field. But of course, one of the reasons why we have discussions about sugar policy every year is that a lot of those global producers are subsidizing their sugar production. And we see those um, surplus sugar, sugar stocks being dumped on the world market, which, you know, of course, that depresses global prices. And we often hear that, that the U.S. price is above the global price. But these are the kind of things that I spend my time working on and trying to explain to both public and members of Congress. But again, a membership in ASA includes the farmers, the processors, and the refiners of sugar beets and sugar cane. And it's <clears throat> governed by the beet and cane organizations that make up the sugar industry. So we mainly have four larger associations that that are members, American Sugar Beet Growers Association, and they represent the 10,000 sugar beet farmers, you know, here in the continental United States. We have the U.S. Sugar Beet Association, which represents the nine sugar cooperatives, which operate 22 factories in those 11 states that um, process sugar beet into, uh, into sugar. Then we've got the Florida Sugarcane Leagues, and they represent Florida's um, sugarcane companies, as well as the Rio Grande um, Valley Sugar Growers, which is a member-owned co-op in Texas, their mills and refineries across the U.S. And finally, the American Sugar Cane League, which represents the Louisiana sugarcane growers and processors, including the 11 raw sugar factories and more than 17,000 employees. So that's who makes up ASA. And essentially, as I mentioned, we're, we bring together one voice and a unified voice and message on you know, where policy is why it's necessary to have that policy um, to keep uh, U.S. sugar production sustainable moving forward. The ASA brings all that, all those aspects of the industry together. We collaborate and share information amongst us ourselves. We often are discussing heavily on how to approach different, different, uh, different topics. 
but certainly we serve as a ASA serves as a clearinghouse and a sort of mission control for the American sugar sector. I would like to go back, if I may, when you mentioned there's some controversy in the sugar industry. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Oh, sure. You know, you, you think about, um, for example, most commodities in the U.S. are export oriented. Um, so we're always looking uh, to, for example, find new access for for our beef in Asia, for example, or find new buyers of uh, corn and soybeans across the, uh, across the globe. Um, sugar, on the other hand, we are an importer. We're the third largest importer of sugar in the world. So we import a good amount of our sugar. In fact, you know, we meet our WTO and our free trade agreements. And that essentially means, as well as our suspension agreements with Mexico, that means that we bring in about 25 to 30% of our sugar from outside the U.S. And the rest of the sugar that's produced, produced from U.S. sugar cane and sugar beets uh, in the U.S. So again, um, because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, other countries are you know, as part of their rural development policy, heavily subsidizing their sugar production because, you know, they don't have other policy means to do so. That results in in those countries oftentimes such producing surplus sugar that needs to be sold at the, you know, at the lowest price in the global market. Their domestic sugar prices are much higher than what they're selling the, uh, those stocks on the, on the world market. So oftentimes you'll see, for example, in the U.S., sugar sugar companies complaining that they can't access more of that global sugar at lower prices compared to having to buy sugar in the United States at a higher price. So that's what I mean by it gets controversial. As I pointed out earlier, U.S. sugar producers are able to compete on a level playing field, but we know it's not a level playing field just because of those global subsidies. We are a a large importer. We do bring in a lot of sugar at those global prices. Almost 30% of our sugar is sourced from foreign foreign producers. But we also do know that we've got a vibrant and sustainable sugar sector in the United States, sugar beet and sugar cane, producing roughly, you know, half of the domestic half and half of the domestic sugar supply that that is, as I mentioned, um, very efficient and also does meet, you know, very high labor and environmental and social standards, labor standards. So we um, we you know want to make sure that our producers are are not being unfairly targeted by foreign subsidies um, and having to compete against those relatively cheap dumped sugar supplies in the global market. Well, thank you for answering that. Dr. Johansson, that leads us to talking about some of the current things that you were working on there at ASA. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, there's a lot going on. It seems like um, both in obviously in the U.S. ag economy, which I continue to follow and to brief our members on, but also specific to sugar. So let me talk about a couple of those. Um, With the new administration coming in, President Biden enacted an executive order on America's supply chains. And as a result, one thing that USDA did, one thing that Secretary Vilsack did was put out a request for information on America's supply chains for agriculture. You know, the U.S. sugar industry was able to uh, meet the challenges of of the pandemic last year. At the same time, uh, the industry had uh, just seen a very short crop, short beet crop in 2019, as well as a short sugarcane crop in Louisiana and Mexico. So we we uh, took some time to respond to that request for information. 
um, to point out how American sugar producers provide just-in-time delivery for their customers, um, which provides a, you know, a huge savings to those customers and convenience, and was able to do so under very, very difficult conditions, both from the pandemic perspective, but also from that short crop perspective. So that was you know, something that we spent a good amount of time working on uh, this year, just noting that and, you know, and trying to make sure that the administration understood the importance of how the U.S. sugar industry was able to do that, given the program that's in place right now. Same, similar to the supply chain discussion that we spent telling in that response for information, you know, right now in the U.S., as you know, we just had Hurricane Ida come through Louisiana that affected a lot of our growers down there. Initial forecasts indicate that, you know, only between 20 to 25 percent of the crop down there was affected. So we'll still have a very a decent harvest. But um, of course, those producers were affected by just like everybody was down there by the very challenging conditions due to the hurricane. And we're fortunate that nobody was was injured and that all the facilities are coming back up to speed as the power comes on. So again, that's something, you know, just the day-to-day that we're working through, making sure that we're on top of what's going on in different parts of the United States with respect to growing conditions and, and different events that are happening. You know, another one, as you're probably familiar with in Colorado, the mega drought that's affecting the northern Great Plains right now. Again, that's affecting all producers, but certainly the large number of acres of planted to sugar beets in the Red River Valley in Minnesota and North Dakota are being affected by that drought, as well as some of the growers that we have in middle part of the state and the southern part of the state of Minnesota, as well as North Dakota. So those growers are are dealing with that that mega drought right now. It's been a little spotty in terms of how much rainfall those those beets have been getting. And so again, this is a situation where we're continually monitoring how the harvest looks. It's farmers are just starting to pull those beets up there for the coming harvest campaign. So we'll watch that and that will give us an indication of how much domestic production we're likely to see this year. And that factors heavily into how USDA views the amount of additional sugar that sugar access that's provided to foreign exporters. So USDA does a very good job of serving um, our companies and our producers to understand what production looks like. So that's one of the things that's sort of the day-to-day that we're constantly going through. Of course, you don't often have to deal with a hurricane and a mega drought at the same time. And uh, those things uh, persist and continually affect the markets. And so, you know, my job is to stay on top of that and to be hopefully able to explain to our producers what's going on with, uh, with the economy as well as explaining things to uh, folks in the government and on the Hill as to how our producers are managing. You know, it's really important to stress, you know, there are policies that are out there such as crop insurance that let producers manage that weather risk, but it's also important to have, you know, for producers to be able to count on the USDA's farm bill programs that, that allow sugar production to occur. They know how much production they're, they're gonna be able to plant for next year, as well as, you know, what a reasonable range of prices to be expected will be. And then they can invest in in equipment and technology to help them deal with, you know, these challenging uh, changes in climate that we've been seeing lately. So again, those are just uh, things that I, I like to keep on top of. Let me just mention on the trade front, we talked a little bit about this controversy or controversial actions regarding the different price that you see in the U.S. versus the global markets. And one thing that we've 
promoted is what uh, zero for zero legislation. So we're out, we're constantly mon- monitoring certainly what Congress is doing and if they're considering any kind of change to sugar policy, both positive or negative. And one thing that we've been working on with some of the folks on the Hill is this zero for zero legislation um, that sort of acknowledges that you know the U.S. or the global the global sugar market being one of the most distorted commodity markets there is because of their sort of large number and large levels of foreign subsidies and market interventions that result in in, in dumping. You know, again, that's the main reason for why we have the policies policies we have. And as I mentioned, the U.S. is already a very large importer of sugar, the third largest. But the policy does enable, you know, America's producers to be, you know, as efficient as they can to contribute to the food security of our of our country, um, provide for that just-in-time delivery. But we would uh, certainly be willing to consider changing that policy once, you know, other countries sort of bring down their their distortionary interventions in the in the global market. So the zero for zero approach, and that's you can see that in some legislation that's been recently introduced by by Congresswoman um, Kamek from Florida and Congressman Congressman um, Kildee from Michigan. If foreign countries give up their production and trade distorting subsidies, the U.S. will also give up its sugar policy. So again, um, that's something that we continue to to work on. You know, we would like to see the global market in sugar be reformed, but it's a long way from that from occurring. So again, um, just emphasizing the need for our current program to remain intact until we see those reforms occur on the global market. And then lastly, again, uh, that we continually look at how the U.S. sugar market is operating, both in terms of prices and in terms of our customers. So oftentimes sweetener users, um, food companies, for example, claim that uh, U.S. sugar policy is raising the U.S. sugar price, and that somehow that's contributing to difficult times for for those companies. And that a they are either losing jobs, or b that they're you know looking to to move overseas to produce. And so we look into those claims seriously to see um, how much um, evidence um, there is for those claims. Um, and one thing we've noted is. Oftentimes, when sugar prices do move up or down, we don't see those sweetener user companies changing their prices. We notice that generally prices for for candy and confectionaries are rising, even when sugar prices are coming down. And in fact, we've seen prices fall by about almost 40% since 2010 in real terms for sugar, for wholesale sugar in the United States. But, you know, we, we note that consumers aren't really seeing the benefit of that. Certainly, both grocery stores um, have not lowered their retail prices for sugar to that degree, and certainly candy and confectionery and bakeries have not lowered the prices for their products to reflect that uh, lower cost of, uh, of input. Now, that's understandable. It's because those companies need to spend a lot of money on labor, on energy, on marketing, on transportation. We've noted that sugar is a very small component of their, even though they're, they're our customers, there are still a small component of their product that those companies are putting out. And, and those, you know, whether it's labor laws or <clears throat> energy prices or um, shipping costs, those are a much bigger determinant of 
of the cost of a, of a food item or a determination to re, to you know to outsource production to uh, to a Canadian or a Mexican company. Um, so again, those are other items that we're continually working on. Um, certainly, like to see U.S. companies um, flourish, and we know that sugar using companies on the, for example, on the stock exchange have surpassed the S and P index by more than 170%. So they're doing well and that's good for us because that means that they're selling lots of products to, to their, their clients and their consumers. And that means they're buying a lot of our products. So that's a good thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it, sometimes when, if they point to us as being a, a reason for why their profits aren't even higher, we just like to, you know, ground truth that a little bit uh, and uh, make sure that uh, those arguments aren't being completely distorted by uh, by some of the, the folks that are making them. At, at any rate, I'll stop there. Those are some of the things that we're working on and certainly happy to answer any questions you might have. Dr. Johansson, I think the only question I have is, could you elaborate a little bit more on how COVID has affected the sugar industry? Sure. You know, obviously COVID affected the whole supply chain for agricultural products in a lot of different ways. So we can talk a little bit about aspects of that. But the biggest one for sugar, and you probably remember this back in March or April of last year, when um, when COVID really led to complete shutdown of, of a lot of the restaurants and other hotel industry chains, we saw a huge change in consumer purchasing habits for food. You know, normally the U.S. consumer or household spends about half of their well, let's put it this way. Of all the food that's purchased in America, <clears throat> about half half the dollars are going to restaurants and other institutions, and about half are going to grocery stores. Now, that changed dramatically during COVID. We saw a huge swing to grocery store purchases um, as consumers stocked up or worried a little bit about supplies, I think. We saw some hoarding behavior occur with some ag products. But by and large, consumers stayed home and cooked a lot at home and baked a lot at home. And so we saw a big change in our demand moving from, you know, from our industrial purchasers or our, our bigger companies to uh, service the consumer demand directly uh, in grocery stores, but also for companies, uh, food companies that were producing baked goods, for example, for grocery store purchases. So it entailed a lot of moving pieces for our producers, for our processing and refining companies to repackage um, what normally would be bulk shipments that were being sent to some of those larger industrial consumers uh, to smaller bags, whether 50-pound bags or 10-pound bags, or even you know four-pound bags that you see on the grocery store shelf. So we saw a big shift in, in that. As an example, uh, between that March and May period in 2020, we switched and added about almost 53 million more four-pound bags to meet consumer needs in grocery stores. And as a result, you know, we didn't see, we saw, you know, empty grocery store shelves, but not empty of sugar. We saw generally ample supply of sugar in most grocery stores throughout the pandemic. But it did require, you know, a, a, a fairly swift and nimble shift in processing and packaging. So that was one fact. Now, in terms of the employee side, you know, of course, COVID affected employees across the country, um, and labor is an issue for all food manufacturers and as well as food processors. But <clears throat> because over the years, both sugar beet processors as well as sugar cane refineries have put a lot of investment into upgrading and modernizing their facilities, 
there's a lot of robotics and a lot of mechanization that has gone on in those facilities. And uh, the folks that are working in those facilities are by and large managing, you know, computer run processes, and they can do that from areas that are, are not like you would see in, for example, a meatpacking plant. They're not next, right next door to their, you know, their colleagues. <clears throat> now that didn't happen, you know, in all cases, certainly we had folks that did get, get sick, um, but, you know, it really didn't affect overall operations. I think most facilities planned for hiring some additional staff to get through COVID and to run shifts in such a way to minimize the, the, the risk of exposure to their employees. Again, I think we, we sort of point to this past year, this pandemic is sort of a, a real highlight for the sugar industry because we did, didn't have supply chain issues. And at the same time, we did have, and we're managing this, as I mentioned earlier, the, the uh, beet crop in 2019 um, certainly had been severely affected by an early freeze that we saw in that Red River Valley area of Minnesota. So our beet crop was down and some of those some of those customers had to find new supplies of sugar from other suppliers, whether that were other beet processors or cane refiners. So we did see some shifting of supplies going on related more to the supply side than to the demand side. But um, by and large, the just-in-time delivery that, that we sort of pride ourselves on, make sure that our customers don't have to invest in large storage facilities we store all the sugar until they need it, and then we send it to them so that they get it just when they need it to put it into their products. Now, one thing I have heard, and just put a small caveat on this, when we talk to some of those clients, they have noted that you know because they were affected by COVID, their demand shifted as well. They had to uh, slow down a little bit on their orders, which did help us sort of readjust. As I mentioned, we had to be nimble to meet this changing demand. We did do that. But I think it was happening at the same time as our customers were also having to adjust. So by and large, again, I don't know if that, that got to all the points of your question, but we did see a big shift in consumer demand. We're seeing it shift back now, of course, you know, sports stadiums are up, are open again. We're seeing folks going to baseball games, hockey game, you know, hockey in the winter, obviously, but buying soda again, you know, that's a big demander for sugar as well, soft drinks as well as concessions. So we're seeing a return to more normal purchasing behavior by American consumer. Of course, we're continually watching the economy, how the Delta variant is affecting different parts of the U.S. economy and how that's going to affect different parts of the egg economy. And those are the kinds of things that producers want to know. They're heading into harvest right now. They're dealing with weather. And so I think that's mainly what they have in their minds. Once again, my guest here today, Dr. Rob Johansson, Director of Economics and Policy Analysis with the American Sugar Alliance. For more information on the organization, be sure to log on to sugaralliance.org. And that will do it for this week's edition of the Ag Queen Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Boyer.